You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As we have seen in the plethora of murder cases that we've covered on this podcast, killers, and even serial killers, come in all shapes and sizes. There is no defining characteristic that is seen across the board in the case of all, or even most, killers. One of the things that is certainly seen in more murderers than not, though, is a progression in crime, and another maddening trait that we come across far too often is that career criminals still find ways to slip through the cracks. Unfortunately, this is not just new in cases that we see and hear today. This week we're going to go back a little bit to the 1980s and 1990s, and we're going to look at the life, crimes, and death of a female serial killer who was active in California and making victims out of people who needed help when they came to her, not to be hurt. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 92 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Death House Landlady, Dorothea Puente. Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9, 1929, in Redlands, California. She was the sixth of seven children to her mother Trudy Mae Gray and her father Jesse James Gray. Jesse supported the family with his wages as a cotton picker, and Trudy was known to work as a sex worker. To say that Dorothea's life early on was difficult would be an understatement. Both of her parents were known alcoholics, and Jesse was known to threaten to take his own life in front of his children on numerous occasions. Both Jesse and Trudy were abusive towards Dorothea and her siblings, and often the children were left to scavenge and fend for themselves. Jesse would die from tuberculosis in 1937 when Dorothea was eight years old. And in 1938, Trudy would lose custody of all of her children, and she would die that year in a motorcycle accident, and the same year that she lost her children. With all seven children now being orphaned, sadly that meant that they would all be scattered throughout the foster care system, with the children all being moved frequently around from foster care home to foster care home, and some of them, at times, living with relatives as well. Dorothea said that while she bounced from home to home, she was sexualized and sexually abused. 
When Dorothea turned 16, she made the decision that she was going to leave the system and head out on her own to try and make something of her life. She left for Olympia, Washington, where she was determined to make a living working as a sex worker in 1945. In Washington, what she found also was her first husband. She met a soldier named Fred McFall, who had just returned stateside after being involved in World War II. The two would get married in 1945 when Dorothea was just 16 years old. The two would have two daughters together, one born in 1946 and one born in 1948. Dorothea would send one child to live with relatives back in Sacramento, California, and the other daughter would be placed into adoption. Dorothea also had a third pregnancy that ended in a miscarriage. McFall would leave Dorothy in 1948. With the end of her first marriage, Dorothea decided that she would head back to California. She wound up in Riverside, California, and that is where she ran afoul of the law for the first time. She was arrested in the spring of 1948, now at the age of 19, for buying women's accessories by using forged checks. Dorothea would plead guilty to two counts of forgery, and she would wind up serving four months of jail time, followed by three years of probation. Six months after she got out of jail, however, Dorothea would do something that she would become known for more and more. She skipped town. Dorothea would leave Riverside completely skipping out on her bail. The next time that Dorothea's life is really seen again is in 1952, when she would marry for the second time, this time to Axel Bren Johansson. Axel was a merchant seaman, who, which meant that he was in and out of port, and that worked out perfectly for Dorothea, who created a fake persona and went by the name Taya Singoala Nearda who was a Muslim woman of Egyptian and Israeli descent. The marriage between the two was turbulent. Whenever Axel was away, Dorothea would gamble his money away and have plenty of gentlemen callers coming to her house. In 1960, Dorothea would again be arrested, this time for owning and operating a bookkeeping firm as a front for a brothel that she was running in Sacramento. Dorothea would be found guilty and sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. In 1961, Axel would have Dorothea committed to DeWitt State Hospital, which was a mental hospital, after she went on a binge of drinking, lying, and committing crimes while also attempting numerous times to take her own life. The final straw for Axel came when Dorothea was found in a brothel and she was attempting to give oral sex to an undercover police officer. While in DeWitt, Dorothea would be diagnosed as a pathological liar and also with an unstable personality. Axel and Dorothea would finally get a divorce in 1966 after 14 years of what could only be described as an unstable and explosive marriage. 
Dorothea, however, would continue to use Axel's last name, Johansson, as she created a new identity, that of Sharon Johansson, a devout Christian woman. She created a persona of a caregiver, and she became known for working with young women who needed to escape poverty and abuse. This would be the beginning of the Death House Landlady as she further developed this persona of hers. In 1968, Dorothea would again get married, this time to Roberto José Puente. The marriage did not last very long, however, as Dorothea would claim that she was being abused by Roberto and the two would separate. In 1969, when Dorothea tried to file for divorce, though, Roberto fled the country and returned to Mexico, causing delays in the divorce that would finally be finalized in 1973. Dorothea would continue to use the name Puente for more than 20 years after the divorce. After the dissolution of her relationship with Roberto, Dorothea would focus on the boarding house that she was now running that was located in Sacramento, California. She was well-respected and well-spoken of because her boarding house seemed to focus on trying to help the people that had the hardest time finding help. She worked with recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, people who suffered from mental health issues, and the elderly. Dorothea would also hold multiple Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and she helped the people that she was working with to sign up for Social Security benefits. Dorothea became this persona as she realized that it was working in the public eye. She let herself become the respectable older lady that was taking care of others. She wore older clothing, she started to wear bigger glasses, and she allowed her hair to turn gray rather than continually working on it. To further her persona, she donated to charities, she donated to scholarships, and everything that she really could to help in the Hispanic community as well. She would even get married for the last time to a man named Pedro Angel Montalvo, but their marriage abruptly ended when Pedro broke things off after only one week of marriage. Her persona carried on, however. To put things in perspective, Dorothea was portraying this elderly woman, and even in 1970, she would have only been 41 years old. On December 21, 1978, Dorothea would again find herself in deep trouble with the law, though as it was discovered that she had illegally cashed 34 state and federal checks that were meant for tenants of her boarding home. She had been forging her own signature on the checks to cash them for her benefit. Dorothea would lose her boarding house and she would be given five years of probation, and she was ordered to pay $4,000 U.S. in restitution, which in today's dollars is about $19,000 U.S. Without her boarding home, she was forced in 1980 to start working as only a personal caretaker. A personal caretaker that was robbing and drugging her clients. On January 16th of 1982, Dorothea would pick up a 74-year-old man named Malcolm McKenzie at a bar, and she would take him back to her apartment with her. 
Malcolm would later state that Dorothea had put some kind of drug into his drink at her place and taken the chance to rob him of money, his watch, and other jewelry, including a large diamond ring that had belonged to his mother. On April 28th of 1982, a 61-year-old woman named Ruth Monroe would be found dead from respiratory depression that was caused by a massive overdose of codeine. Ruth had been living with Dorothea at the time and had been there for a couple of weeks. People would state that before Ruth moved in with Dorothea, she was in good health. Ruth had reportedly told a friend on April 25th, though, that she was feeling worse and worse every day, and she feared that she was going to die. Dorothea would tell investigators that Ruth had been increasingly depressed because her husband was terminally ill, and authorities would rule that Ruth Monroe died from suicide. Dorothea would be convicted of theft in August of 1982 after being accused by Malcolm, and she was sentenced to five years in jail and to be under state parole until March 21st of 1986, with federal parole extending until 1990. While Dorothea was in prison, she struck up a pen pal friendship with a man named Everson Theodore Gilmouth, who was a 77-year-old man from Oregon. In early September of 1985, Everson would come to Sacramento with his truck and trailer, and he would go to Dorothea's boarding home. Dorothea, you see, had been released on September 9th, 1985, after serving only half of her sentence. She would be picked up by Everson and taken back to her home, which would again become a rooming home. Only a month later, Dorothea would write to Everson's sister to tell her that she and Everson were going to get married on November 2nd of 1985. After seemingly tying up those loose ends, Dorothea hired a handyman to help her with building some things at her home. She also asked him to build a 6 foot long by 30 inch wide by 30 inch deep storage box that she said she was going to use to store her books inside of. For payments for all of the work that Ismael Carrasco Flores, the handyman, had done, Dorothea said that she would pay him by giving him Everson's truck and $800. Ishmael would later say that the day after he completed the box, he returned to Dorothea's home and found the box nailed shut. He said that Dorothea had asked him to help her take the box from the home to a storage location. Ishmael would say that the box now weighed approximately 300 pounds. The storage location that Dorothea had in mind was not what Ishmael expected, however, and the two of them dumped the box nearby the bed of a river about an hour from Sacramento. The box would be discovered on January 1st of 1986 by fishermen in the area, but the body that they found wrapped in bedsheets and plastic bags, all held together by electrical tape and surrounded by mothballs, and toilet deodorizer was not traceable and became a John Doe case until 1989. It would be discovered after Dorothea's final arrest that she had mailed fake letters and cards from Everson to his sister and had gone out of her way to ensure that nobody knew that Everson was no longer alive. 
She also collected his government benefit checks until July of 1986. So, after only serving two and a half years in prison, Dorothea was definitely back at large and working in the community and committing crimes left and right. Unfortunately, those crimes would go undetected for a very long time. At least, what was really happening, anyhow. In the ensuing years, somehow, Dorothea would once again find a way to restore her name and, like I said, start running another boarding house. She again put all of her focus seemingly into the types of people that needed help the most but had the hardest time finding that help. She again would put her time and attention towards the so-called shadows of society. Drug addicts seniors, and people who struggled with mental health issues. She would take them in, and she would take advantage of them. It appeared that Dorothea was vetting her potential clients very carefully as she managed to fly under the radar of everyone until 1988. In 1988, one of Dorothea's tenants was a woman named Alvaro Montoya, and she was 52 years old. Alvaro would go missing, but she wasn't like the vast majority of the people that Dorothea had taken in. There were still eyes on Alvaro. A woman named Judy Moise was an outreach counselor at Volunteers of America, and she became very suspicious when she found out that Alvaro had disappeared. Even though Alvaro struggled with mental health issues and had been homeless for many years prior, she did not believe that it was in her character to just up and disappear like she did. Alvaro arrived at Dorothea's home in February of 1988, and by March, an application was filed that designated Dorothea as Alvaro's payee. Then, in August, one of the other people living with Dorothea saw a man clearing Alvaro's things out of her closet. Alvaro was last seen on August 24th of 1988. Dorothea would tell people that Alvaro had gone back to Mexico to visit her relatives. In November, Dorothea went as far as to get another man to pretend to be a cousin of Alvaro and make a phone call to let social services know that Alvaro was with him. Judy was very suspicious of the entire setup and so she told Dorothea that she was going to call the police so that they could look into the situation regarding Alvaro. After she made that threat, she received a very odd letter in the mail that was supposedly from that same relative in Mexico, Michelle Obergon, and the letter was wrapped in paper towel so that there were no fingerprints left behind. Suffice to say, with that weird piece of mail, the police were called. On November 7th of 1988, they would arrive at the home of Dorothea, and she would back up her original story that she had told to social services, which, of course, was that Alvaro had gone home to visit relatives. One of the residents, John Sharp, even backed up her story and said that same things that Dorothea had said. However, when officers were about to leave, John handed them a note that said, quote, She's making me lie. Unquote. 
After receiving that note, the police would talk and return to the property on November 11th. They asked Dorothea if they could look around at the property, and she said that was fine. Police investigated the property, and when they found nothing, they asked Dorothea if they could look in the yard and dig on the property. Dorothea said they could, and even handed them an extra shovel. She then asked officers if she could leave to get herself a coffee, and the officers said that she could. Officers began to dig in areas of the yard that appeared to have been recently disturbed. After only 30 minutes of digging, the detectives that, was on the, um, that were on the scene would uncover a body. The body would be discovered to be that of a former tenant, Leona Carpenter, who was 78 years old. Seven other bodies would also be uncovered at the scene, but there would be one problem. That cup of coffee that Dorothea left for? She never came back from that trip to a hotel close by. Instead, she fled for Los Angeles, met a senior at a bar, and tried to get an inn for a place to go. However, that didn't go so well for Dorothea, and the senior that she was chatting up actually recognized her from the mugshot on the news, and he called the authorities. Dorothea's escape only would last five days. On November 17th of 1988, Dorothea would be flown from Hollywood Burbank Airport to Sacramento with a police escort, and she would be formally charged with one count of murder, that of Alvaro Montoya. On her flight back, though, Dorothea held resolute and said that she had not killed anyone and was even quoted as saying, I used to be a very good person at one time. On March 31st of 1989, there were amendments made to the charges against Dorothea and she would be charged with nine counts of murder with special circumstance. That special circumstance meant that her case would be a death penalty case. Investigators determined that most of her victims had been the victims of drugging until they finally overdosed. Once the victim had passed away, Dorothea would wrap them up in bedsheets and plastic lining, and then she would drag the body out to an open pit in the backyard to bury the body. Dalmain, which is a drug that is used as a sleeping drug for insomnia, was found in all seven of the exhumed bodies. The prosecution would contend that Dorothea was a vindictive and brutal killer who planned, chose her victims, and carried out murder without a second thought. Their contention was that Dorothea was a manipulative criminal who lived to prey on and take advantage of the weak. Consequently, her defense team would paint Dorothea as a sweet grandma type who was trying to help some less fortunate people that others were not helping. They did not defend the fact that Dorothea was a thief and that she had scammed people, and the government for that matter, out of a lot of money. Their contention was that while it was proven that Dorothea was a thief, being a thief did not mean that she was also a murderer. John O'Mara, who was the prosecuting lawyer, said that Dorothea was one of the worst killers that he had ever seen or heard of. He even went as far as to call her one of the most cold and calculating female killers 
that the United States had ever seen. She found victims right from the beginning. She took them in, she made them trust her and accept her help, and then she took their lives. The trial would see 156 witnesses come to testify, over 3,100 exhibits submitted as evidence, and over 22,000 pages of transcript were written. The jury would go into deliberation for 11 days and would then come to Judge Michael J. Verga on August 2nd and say that they were deadlocked on each and every count of the nine counts of murder, and they said that they needed further instruction because they could not come to a decision. The following day, the judge would tell the jury to continue deliberating and find a way to break the deadlock. Finally, on August 26th of 1993, the jury would return to the courtroom and Dorothea would be convicted on three counts of murder for the deaths of Leona Carpenter, Benjamin Fink, and Dorothy Miller. So, after 35 days of deliberation, the jury was still deadlocked on the murder charges for the deaths of Everson Theodore, Betty Mae Palmer, Ruth Monroe, Vera Faye Martin, James Gallup, and Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya. It is widely believed that the nature that Dorothea was presented as in that courtroom by her defense team as a loving and doting grandmother who was trying to help was a major cause for the deadlocking on the other six murder charges. It is incredibly difficult for a jury at times to bring charges down on such a person for many reasons. First of all, it is inherently difficult to look at someone who looks sweet and frail and believe that they are serial killers. It's built into our systems and it's good in every way except this one, to look at an elderly person and simply think that they are sweet and kind and caring. Secondly, as a juror, you would look at Dorothea and she would likely remind you of someone and that makes it even more difficult. Prosecuting against older people, especially when they are presented as Dorothea was, is not an easy endeavor. The jury would again be dispatched, this time for the penalty phase of the trial. They needed to determine whether to give Dorothea life in prison or the death penalty. The jury again would find themselves deadlocked, and October 13th of 1993, it was announced that Dorothea would not receive the death penalty. On December 10th, 1993, it was made official, and Dorothea was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. She would be imprisoned at Central California Women's Facility in Chochilla, California. On August 28th of 1997, while reviewing the case, an appellate court in San Jose would affirm the murder convictions. However, they did order an examination of misconduct allegations that had popped up about some of the jurors on the trial. After a three-day hearing, however, all allegations of jury misconduct were rejected and Dorothea's case would stand. Dorothea would ultimately pass away of natural causes in prison on March 27th of 2011. She was 82 years old at the time of her death. I want to look at the victims of Dorothea here to close the episode. 
those that she was convicted of killing, and those that she wasn't. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information available on the victims, but I do still want to talk about each one of them and what happened to them at the hands of Dorothea. We already spoke of Ruth Monroe, Everson Gilmouth, and Alvaro Montoya earlier in the episode, as their deaths came before Dorothea's previous incarceration. In the fall of 1986, Betty Mae Palmer, who was 78 years old, would arrive at the boarding house. On October 14, 1986, Dorothea would obtain a California ID card with her own photo, but Betty Mae's name on it. Two months after that, the mailing address for all of Betty Mae's social security checks was changed to the address of the boarding home, and Dorothea would forge Betty May's signature on almost $10,000 worth of benefit checks. Betty May Palmer's body would be found in a shallow hole in Dorothea's front yard as a part of the investigation. Her body was partially dismembered, and her head, hands, and lower legs were never found. Betty May had the presence of doxylamine, haloperidol, and florazepam, easy for me to say, in her system when she died. She was identified through x-ray comparisons. On October 21st of 1986, Dorothea would call a notary to the hospital room of one Leona Carpenter. Dorothea would be given power of attorney over Leona at that point, and she began to cash her social security checks just 10 days after she was made POA. When Leona was discharged from the hospital in December, she then moved into the boarding house with Dorothea. She would have an overdose and go back to the hospital, but again be discharged in February of 1987. This time, Leona disappeared. Her body would be discovered in the southeastern corner of Dorothea's yard at the boarding house as a part of the search, and she was discovered to have codeine, diazepam, and florazepam in her system at the time of her death. Leona was a sick widow who died from a drug overdose at the house. This was one of the murder convictions as it was determined that Leona was not well enough to have even got out of bed to get her medication in order for her to overdose. Therefore, Dorothea had to be involved. In February of 1987, a 62-year-old man named James Gallup would move into the boarding house. On July 20th of 1987, it was discovered that James had a potentially malignant tumor in his colon. James had agreed to do further testing, but Dorothea contacted the doctor's office and told them that he had changed his mind and left for Los Angeles and hadn't left an indication of whether or when he was coming back. James's body would be discovered as a part of the search, and he was found buried under a gazebo in Dorothea's yard. His toxicology would show the presence of amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and phenytoin, and florazepam. James was a survivor and someone who had been through a lot. He had overcome a heart attack and a brain tumor earlier in his life. In July of 1987, a 58-year-old man named Eugene Gamble would be found dead of an apparent suicide 
after overdosing on amitriptyline and ethanol. Dorothea was Eugene's landlady at the time, and she would speak up and say that Eugene had a long track record of trying to take his own life. Eugene was a man that Dorothea was never charged with murder in the case of, but many believe that given the circumstances, there was certainly reason to believe that he was also a victim of Dorothea. On October 2nd of 1987, a 61-year-old woman named Vera Faye Martin was sent to live at the boarding house. Literally three days later, Dorothea started to forge Vera Faye's social security checks, and she did that for approximately $7,000. Vera Faye did not reach out to her daughter on October 19th for her daughter's birthday, and that was very unusual, as Vera Faye had called her every single year previously. Vera Faye would be found as a part of the search, and she was buried under a metal shed in the yard of the boarding house. Her toxicology would reveal that she had florazepam in her system at her time of death. Horrifyingly, investigators believe that Vera Faye may have been buried alive. They said that patterns in the dirt around her body showed that she may have been trying to claw out from under the dirt. On October 21st of 1987, a 65-year-old woman named Dorothy Miller would move into Dorothea's boarding house, and Dorothea would register someone else as the payee for Miller's Social Security benefit checks. Only mere weeks after Miller arrived at the home, it was reported that she had disappeared. Then, on November 20th, Dorothea would hire a carpet cleaner to remove, quote, a pile of foul-smelling slime, unquote, from Miller's room. Dorothea would ultimately forge over $10,000 of Miller's checks. Miller's remains would be discovered as a part of the search, and she had been buried under a concrete slab that was alongside rose bushes in the yard of the boarding house. Her toxicology would show that she had carbamazepine and florazepam in her system at the time of death. Dorothy's death was one of the three convictions that were handed down for murder to Dorothea. Next was Alvaro Gonzalez, who we talked about earlier. Thank goodness that someone was keeping an eye on him and his case. Who knows what more could have happened if the alarm bells had not finally gone off when Alvaro went missing. Finally, on March 9th of 1988, a 55-year-old man named Benjamin Fink would be sent to live at the boarding house. For six weeks, like clockwork, Benjamin's brother would come to visit him every single week. However, by the end of April, Benjamin was gone. One of the other tenants would tell Dorothea that he smelled something foul coming from Benjamin's room, but Dorothea said that it was a sewage backup. On April 29th, Dorothea received 12 bags of cement at the boarding house, and that June she would have a massive hole dug beside the shed in the yard, and the hole would be filled with concrete. Benjamin's body would be discovered here during the search wrapped in plastic bedspread, taped with duct tape, and covered in blue padding. His toxicology would show that he had amitriptyline, loaxapine, and florazepam in his system at the time of his death. Benjamin was the third victim whose death led to a murder conviction for Dorothea. 
I say it every time that we cover a serial killer on the podcast, but going through the list of crimes for a serial killer is hard enough. But to lay out names and information on either their past life or what happened to them at the end of their lives is incredibly difficult. The fact that this monster was able to do this repeatedly, take lives as though they were nothing and commit fraud, shows just how evil she truly was. I suppose I should add that right up to the end, Dorothea was adamant that she took good care of the people that were in her care and that she was innocent. She said, quote, The only time they were in good health was when they stayed at my home. I made them change their clothes every day, take a bath every day, and eat three meals a day. When they came to me, they were so sick they weren't expected to live, unquote. If you're interested in watching or learning even more about the monster that is now known as the Death House Landlady, her case has been covered many times. On television shows like Crime Stories, Deadly Women, Stranger in My Home, World's Most Evil Killers, and Worst Roommate Ever, among many others, have all covered this case. The 1991 movie Evil Spirits is loosely based on the murders that Dorothea committed. In 1988, Dorothea made contact with a man named Shand Bugby, and the two worked together on Cooking with a Serial Killer, which came out in 2004. The book included a long interview with Dorothea, almost 50 recipes, and various pieces of art from prison that were sent to him by Dorothea. The boarding house, too, of course, has its own stories. The home was toured a few times and opened for tours, and in 2015, Ghost Adventures would investigate the house because many had said that the home was haunted by the victims and even the spirit of Dorothea herself. In 2020, the home was featured on the series Murder House Flip and has been renovated and still stands today. That is where we'll put a wrap on it for this week, and as always, I want to leave you with a question to end the episode. Do you think that when presented with a fraudulent grandmother in court, if you were a juror, you would be able to A. Find her guilty of murder, and B. Sentence her to death? Or would you struggle in those circumstances as well? Jump onto our socials. We're at GBNF Pod on X, Instagram, and TikTok, and can be found easily on Facebook as well. Let me know what you think. Until next week, then, don't forget that nobody can be trusted. Sometimes not even those that are put into positions of trust, and that is why we, me, and all of you goners out there, need to be better. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. See you next week.